This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, you're listening to New Books in History. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie, a PhD student at Northwestern University. Today I'll be speaking with Douglas Irwin about his fantastic, broad-sweeping new book called Clashing Over Commerce, A History of U.S. Trade Policy. It was published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. Irwin is the John French Professor of Economics at Dartmouth and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. Scholars haven't always found tariff policy to be the sexiest area of research. One historian said that the tariff has caused narcolepsy among his colleagues. But today, as the Trump administration ratchets up a trade war with China, and along with other countries, they cannot deny its significance for party politics, the global economy, and international relations. In Clashing Over Commerce, Douglas Irwin resists the seemingly soporific qualities of tariffs and trade policy, and he shows how they have been at the center of so many of the major crises in U.S. history, from 1776 to the election of Donald Trump. He turns tariffs and trade policy into a novel history of the republic itself. Most remarkably, Irwin writes about highly technical matters in pleasant and thoughtful prose, so that even an economic history dilettante like myself can follow along. The book should interest economic historians, scholars of American political development, and historians of U.S. foreign relations. I hope you enjoy our interview. I'm speaking with Douglas Irwin about his new book, Clashing Over Commerce. Thanks for being on the show, Doug. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. And so I really enjoyed your book, and I'm very thrilled that we are speaking today about it. And so before we get into the book's arguments, I'd like to discuss the basics of trade policy. Uh, and so just to get us started, what is trade policy and um, why do people uh, care about tariffs? Well, um, so the way I think about trade policy is uh, we have to start with the fact that most countries engage in international trade and international trade is a two-way street. So countries export some of their goods and services to other countries in exchange for imports of goods and services from uh, elsewhere. So you have to keep that in mind that it involves both exports and imports. And then when we think about government policy, um, that involves either trying to subsidize or encourage an activity um, or trying to tax or discourage an activity. So that sort of gives us a two by two matrix of of. You know, trade is exports and imports. Policy is either subsidies or taxes. 
And um, when you think about those four, export subsidies, export taxes, import subsidies, import taxes, and then you look at the American historical experience, um, it really comes down to import tariffs being the most important one. Um, the Constitution actually prohibits export taxes, so we take that off the board. Um, we export subsidies. We do have an export-import bank. Uh, it was created in 1934 in the Roosevelt administration, but it's never been really big, um, and we, we haven't been a big subsidizer of our exports. Um, import subsidies, most countries, in fact, I can't think of any country that's really subsidized uh, you know, bringing in foreign goods. And so that leaves import tariffs, who is really where all the action is in terms of trade policy. So why is that? Um, well, uh, with international trade, uh, there's exports and imports, but there's also sort of winners and losers domestically. So some groups uh, benefit from exporting. Other groups are harmed by imports, by foreign competition. And so they uh, have in the past lobbied the government for uh, higher barriers against imports um, so that they can raise prices and increase their domestic output. Um, but so you're reshuffling in some sense uh, income and jobs whenever you change tariff rates. Uh, whether you raise them or lower them, there's going to be winners and losers, and there's always a political fight over exactly what a country's trade policy ought to be. Americans care about the tariff, um, but as you show in your introduction, uh, tariffs have not been the most exciting uh, topic for scholars, uh, you know, historians and economic historians alike. Um, you know, you have uh, a quote from one historian who wrote that tariffs are extraordinarily uninteresting things unless related to the political events which give them meaning. And then you have another who wrote that tariffs had produced narcolepsy among generations of American historians. And so here you come along, uh, you know, uh, wading into this, uh, um, this, this field of research that people have declared boring. Uh, and you write an 800-page book about it. Um, why have scholars gotten tariffs so wrong? Uh, and why do you think they are worthy of scholarly attention? Uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned those quotes. Those are uh, some of my favorites uh, in the book. Um, and uh, I think what one was a political scientist, one was a historian. And so that's where I think they left an opening for me. So I leave it to others and the readers to judge whether tariffs are inherently interesting or not. I certainly think in the age of Trump, uh, there's been a lot more attention to tariffs than there have been in the past. But obviously, when you go in the past, it's been a major uh, issue in the United States, U.S. politics, uh, particularly in the 19th century, but uh, even into the 20th century with um, uh, the Smoot-Hawley tariff and the Great Depression or the NAFTA debate in the early 1990s. There's always been a debate about uh, trade policy. But I think uh, sort of historians and political scientists, um, they, they've dealt with tariff history to some extent, but uh, as those quotations suggest, um, they're not really interested in the economics of it per se. They're not really interested in um, uh, some of the effects of trade policy. They talk about it as a political issue or as a historical issue. So I think that's where being an, an economist uh, gives me a little bit of an advantage in the sense that saying, well, let's look at these debates, um, which I think are interesting um, and have certainly shaped uh, American politics and American government. But also, let's look at some of their economic effects. So in the you know, historical debates of tariff policy in the past, there's always been one side arguing that we should raise tariffs because that'll help the American economy prosper. And another group arguing, well, if we raise tariffs, that'll hurt other sectors and the economy will collapse. So the question is, who's right? And economics gives us a way of judging um, winners and losers and which arguments are um, historically or economically accurate and which ones are not. Um, and to quantify some of the impacts of the trade policies we've seen. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and so like something that I was really impressed with about um, or in your book was um, just how explanation driven the book was. Uh, I mean, I could uh, very easily imagine another uh, um, you know, book on the same topic um, that goes through the same length of time, you know, from the colonial period to the present, and kind of just throwing up their arms, uh, you know, the author throwing up their arms in, uh, um, you know, exasperation and just saying everything is complicated. But uh, you organize your material around an interesting and, to my knowledge, um, surprising thesis um, that despite how politically divisive tariffs have been, um, trade policy has actually been remarkably stable. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could just share with listeners um, what causes that stability. Sure. So if you, uh, I have a chart in the introduction where it just plots the average tariff rate of the United States from 1790, the first year in which we have data, right up to 2016, which is the last time uh, we could obviously do it for today, but uh, 2016 up to the present. And if you look at it, there's a lot of you know jumping up and down and uh, a lot of variation. And so if you look at that and you say, wow, the average tax on imports is you know pretty volatile, uh, there must be a lot driving it. It turns out that a lot of that is spurious. And when you uh, look at, for a reason we can get into, um, but when you look at when how the Congress or the president is actually setting tariff rates, um, first of all, they don't do it. They don't change the rates that often. So I think I calculated that Congress in the 19th and early 20th century only changed the tariff code every once every seven years or so. So it's infrequently changed in that sense. And then when they did make the changes, um, you know, they weren't radical uh, movements up or down. They were sort of incremental changes. So even when you had a change in uh, the political party in, in control, and even if they said in their platform that they really disagreed with the existing trade policy, um, they really wouldn't change it all that much. Um, it was more incremental. So um, then the question is sort of what's driving that. And um, so uh, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, uh, you don't have a, a switch in party dominance um, very often in American history. Uh, you know, if we look at the pre-Civil War period, um, the Democrats uh, who were largely based in the South, uh, they sort of dominated American politics in the 1830s to the 18, right up to the Civil War. When you look at the uh, post-Civil War period right up to the Great Depression, it's really the Republicans who drew their political support from the North that dominated. Not that there aren't some Democratic administrations, but Republicans really were in, in charge. And then obviously since the Great Depression <coughs> depression until the um, 1990s or so, uh, Democrats really dominated the political system. So you have this political factor of, of one party largely in charge of things that can sort of set uh, the agenda and, and set the tariff rates the way they want them. Um, you have economic interests operating in Congress that are very resistant to change. You have infrequent periods in which Congress can actually um, take up the tariff as a, a possible legislation. And so that gives a much greater stability than you might uh, think when you look at the sort of the um, jagged lines of the average tariff rate over time. And if I just one last point on that. So there's these underlying you know, political and economic um, and even economic geography features that uh, filters into Congress that keeps this keeps uh, policy relatively stable. Um, uh, the thing that's causing a lot of the annual volatility and even sometimes pretty big changes is the is a very sort of <clears throat> um, technical point that a lot of the import tariffs that uh, Congress has had in the past are specific duties, which is a specific dollar amount per imported quantity. When we think of a, a usual tax, it's usually ad valorem, uh, a 20% tax or a 5% tax or something like that. But when you have those specific dollar taxes on particular imports, the ad valorem equivalent is inversely related to prices. 
So here's where <laughs> perhaps where tariff policy gets sort of boring for uh, non-economists. I'm loving um, it. With so that, far. Okay, <laughs> uh, make, makes one one of you. Um, so let's say we had a, a five dollar tax on a shirt. Um, well, if you have a fifty dollar shirt, that's a, a ten percent tax. But if that uh, shirt goes from fifty dollars to five hundred dollars, then that five dollar tax is really low as a percentage of the value of the price. So what that means is during periods of inflation, say during World War II, for example, um, average tariffs are going to fall, not because the rate is changing, but because the uh, ad valorem equivalent of that specific duty is changing. And then conversely, when we have periods of deflation, when prices are falling, if that $10 shirt falls to $5, that's now 100% tax on on, uh, that import. so during, during periods of deflation, um, average tariffs are going to go up. Once again, not because Congress or the president changed the tariff rate at all, um, just because of the which way prices are going. So that's sort of one thing that um, uh, members of Congress and the president don't directly control is what those import prices are. And that can account for some of the changes in uh, tariff rates over time. Hmm. And so you've already gestured to uh, the changes um, that have happened. So yeah, so you know, you have your this thesis about um, stability um, uh, um, within, you know, tariff policy regimes, you know, particular time periods. Um, but you do have uh, some pretty big changes, um, you know, across the history of the Republic. Um, and you organize it um, around, uh, you know, a really uh, helpful mnemonic device almost, uh, um, you know, the three R's. Uh, the you know from the country's founding to the Civil War, um, the uh, the government used tariffs to raise revenue, and then from the Civil War to the Great Depression, the government sought to restrict imports to res- um, to protect domestic producers from foreign competition, and then from the Depression to the present, um, the government sought reciprocity agreements um, with other countries um, so as to lower trade barriers, and so we're going to talk about um, each of these. Um, policy regimes um, and sort of how they came about. Um, they, they were each, um, uh, you know, really interesting. Um, and so I want to begin, though, with the colonial and revolutionary period. Uh, and so as we know very well from, you know, the Boston Tea Party, uh, um, trade was a huge factor in the American Revolution. Um, but you zoom in on trade uh, much more than, uh, you know, many other works on the subject. And so I was just wondering, um, like, how does your analysis depart from uh, perhaps more classical narratives about the revolution? Hmm. That's a, a good question. I don't know exactly uh, how much I would differ from the revolution. You know, what, one tricky question that um, economists, historians, and political scientists have sort of grappled with is how much of the forces driving the American Revolution and the uh, war for independence was sort of economic-based? Did we have an economic grievance with being part of Britain? Or was it a political one where it was just a matter of political power and sovereignty? Or was it uh, some other factors? And I think, uh, you know, I defer to his- historians who have looked into the period much more in much more detail than I have, but it seems like that uh, you have a lot of different f- factors uh, factoring into this thing. Um, and that the economic um, uh, argument is there. Um, and whether you think it's dominant or not, I don't take a stand on that directly, but it certainly is, is a source of, of grievance. What's interesting here is that um, when you look at sort of the, when economists uh, and economic historians have calculated sort of the, what is the burden or the cost of British mercantilist policies on the American economy? How much richer would we have been if we didn't have to send all, all of our exports to Britain and could import freely from uh, uh, the rest of the world? 
the total number is pretty small as a share of U.S. GDP. Um, it may even be less than 1%. But the burden was unequal across different uh, uh, colonies. So particularly Virginia apparently was um, hurt uh, the most um, due to the enumeration of exports of tobacco. And since tobacco was such a big part of the Virginia economy and a lot of the members in uh, the Continental Congress were uh, directly or indirectly um, tobacco farmers or their other planters, um, they were took the lead in pushing for independence. So the question is how far you want to push that argument that there was an, sort of an economic basis. Um, and then Britain, of course, I mean, partly uh, the Boston uh, uh, port as being a place where there's a lot of merchant commerce um, and how much were they aggrieved as a result of British policies. So there's something to the fact, I think, that um, economics played a role in in um, uh, the Declaration of Independence. In fact, there's a clause or two in the Declaration itself talking about uh, the freedom, the colonists wanting the, the freedom to trade with the rest of the world and, and the crown having interfered with that. Um, there's also a case to be made that we have the Constitution itself uh, because of the failure of the Articles of Confederation in giving trade policy powers to uh, the Continental Congress. Um, so the, the, the trade was very much part of the colonial economy. Um, you know, we were basically... Um, English settlers and, and other settlers across the, uh, you know, very narrow uh, on the seacoast, um, uh, gathered around certain ports. Um, so trade was a big part of the economy and economic activity. And uh, it just plays a big role in American history in the uh, colonial and early post-colonial period. Mm-hmm. So your, your answer made me think of uh, another question, um, which is, uh, and this is something you've, you've again already alluded to, but I, I would just love to hear more about it. So your book, um, deals a lot with geography, um, you know, political geography and economic geography. Um, and uh, I was just uh, wondering if you could just um, say a bit more about, um, you know, how this uh, works in relation to the tariff, uh, you know, over the the longer period of uh, American history. Sure, that's uh, absolutely one of the themes of the book um, on terms of where uh, different industries are located and what their trade interest is, and then how this plays out in terms of politics. So any country, um, U.S., no exception, obviously, um, decides politically uh, in its legislature or its executive branch, but uh, for most of U.S. history in the legislature, what its trade policy will be. So that means that um, the rules of representation are very important for which states and which regions of the country get um, their um, you know stake uh, uh, validated or not by um, legislative voting. So you have to look. So sort of the, a lot of the book focuses on Congress. That's sort of the crucible. That's where trade policy decisions are really made. Even today, where uh, you know President Trump has renegotiated NAFTA. There's something called the USMCA, um, but it really depends on Congress approving it. So Congress really holds a lot of the cards in terms of trade policy. That that means the committee system matters. Um, which states uh, have a right to vote matters and the representation of those states. And then that also depends on the um, economic interests in those states. Um, how many states are exporting or view themselves as uh, benefiting from the world economy by, through exports versus how many states and regions of the country feel threatened by trade uh, because um, import competition will hurt the jobs in that states and incomes in that states, those states. And uh, so one of the biggest divides that obviously historians know very much about is the North-South divide in the 19th century. Uh, And that was uh, one based on economics as well in terms of trade. Um, After the War of 1812, when the U.S. begins to um, uh, become uh, more of a manufacturer, all that manufacturing was largely located in the North, in New England with textiles and Pennsylvania with iron and glass and things of that sort. 
And most of the exports um, were exported uh, crops from the South, tobacco, cotton, and things of that sort. So the divide over trade policy was very much a, a geographic one, depending on the different regions of the country, and um, a north-south one. And just to show you how these economic interests can override party interests in many uh, cases, um, the state of Louisiana in the 19th century and early 20th century was almost always represented by uh, the Democrats. And the Democrats typically wanted low tariffs. They wanted to cut the tariff rates. And uh, if you look at uh, political maps uh, of the tariff votes, um, it's always uh, South Carolina that's voting against uh, the effort to reduce tariffs. Why would that be? They're a democratic state. They're going against the party. Well, they're going against it because they didn't want duties on imported sugar cut. Um, the sugar economy was so important in Louisiana, if you're a representative or a senator, you're willing to go against uh, uh, the tide of uh, the party party leadership uh, and vote in, uh, to keep those duties uh, relatively high. So those state interests are really very powerful. They're long lasting. You know, you can go back to the 1820s um, uh, and representatives from Pennsylvania were very much against more open trade because they want to help out the steel industry. Well, the steel industry is still around today. Um, you know, President Trump imposed tariffs on imported steel. And uh, whether you're a Republican or Democrat from Pennsylvania or Ohio, uh, you probably applauded that decision. So another theme of the book is that these economic interests and the location, geographic location of economic activity, it's very long lasting over time. Um, and uh, so we can see a lot of uh, the echoes from the past, even in today's trade politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's well put. Um, yeah, and the, the, the maps in your, um, like the, the voting maps in your book are just stunning in how they reveal uh, um, just like how sticky uh, you know, these um, interests are, you know, you, you, you take a map from how people voted on the tariff in the early 19th century versus the early 20th century. And it's almost, uh, you know, state by state, the exact same. Yep. Now, and that's what I thought was a really great in, uh, indicator of the sort of stickiness. I like that word that you used. Um, just the, um, the fact that the, you know, certain regions of the country really specialize in certain activities and it doesn't change much over time. And the pattern of trade doesn't change all that much over time. And so you see these long lasting patterns in congressional voting. Uh, and so I, I want to move on from uh, this earlier period, um, you know, that was um, governed more by, uh, you know, trade policy for the purposes of raising revenue for the government um, to the next era, um, which um, is, um, oriented around this idea of, um, you know, restriction. And so uh, how did this transition happen? And um, w w what exactly was, uh, you know, what, what were the trade policy politics of the late 19th century and early 20th century? Sure. Well, let me just step back and explain a little bit more about this, uh, the three R's, as uh, I put it, the re revenue restriction reciprocity, because I try to start out the book with first principles about what trade policy is, and then also what the motivation of governments uh, are to uh, impose tariffs on imports. I don't want to presume that uh, it's just going to be economists reading this book. I try to make it accessible to just about anyone. And uh, when you think about why would a country tax imports, um, I, you know, basically it comes down to one of three reasons, although all three are at in play at any uh, given point in time. Um, one is import tariffs are a tax and taxes raise revenue. Um, and so as uh, you suggested before the Civil War, um, you know, a lot of revenue for the federal government came through import tariffs. That's exactly what the Federalist Papers predicted. Um, and uh, about 90% of federal government revenue up to 1860 was generated by the tariff. So revenue is a very important consideration. The next one would be restriction. 
um, where you just you don't want to raise revenue. You just want to restrict imports to protect a domestic producer from foreign competition, whether it's the steel workers in the 19th century or the auto workers during the 1980s or, or what have you. And then another motivation for uh, changing your tariff rates would be reciprocity. Uh, and there's both a positive reciprocity and a negative one. A positive one in some sense is you know, we're willing to reduce our tariffs if other countries agree to reduce their tariffs on our goods. Um, so that gives rise to trade agreements. And then sort of a negative or, or uh, reciprocity would be when we're raising our tariffs against certain countries because they don't treat our goods fairly or they've raised their goods against us. So, so that's what we're doing today with China. We think they're not treating our goods uh, fairly. Um, but, you know, just because there are these three, um, each there's been sort of three periods in U.S. history where each one of these has been predominant. So before the Civil War, it was revenue was really the main driver behind Congress imposing tariffs on imports. From the Civil War up to the Great Depression, it's restriction. Um, and then after uh, great or during the Great Depression and uh, really to the present day, um, reciprocity has been sort of the key. So you asked specifically about the uh, restriction period. Well, one question is, why do we get these transitions from one hour to the next? Um, here's sort of where I invoke exogenous shocks. So what happened when we had the Civil War is we uh, redistributed political power in the United States. It wasn't just a, a war. Uh, it's the North really became, became dominant in American politics. Um, and that just meant that you're, re you're empowering a different set of states and you're empowering a different set of economic interests associated with that. And in the North, as I mentioned before, that's where the early manufacturing was in the United States, uh, in New England and Pennsylvania and Ohio and the upper Midwest, uh, upstate New York and what have you. And they wanted protection from import competition. So because the Civil War redistributed political power in the United States, we got a different trade policy. Um, where the northern states uh, had more uh, power in Congress and could uh, sort of um, implement their will through uh, um, passing higher tariffs. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Great. And so, uh, oh, yeah, so like, let's, let's move on to uh, the 20th century. You know, your, your book is essentially about how the sausage gets made when it comes to trade policy. Uh, and uh, you spend uh, an entire chapter looking at um, one particular sausage, um, the Holly Smoot Tariff of 1930. It was a really interesting chapter um, that just showed like how yeah how policy gets made, um, and you know this this tariff has become infamous with uh, you know uh, its association with the Great Depression. Um, but something that you show um, that um, just really stunned me was how little consideration. Um, the uh, you know the policymakers and politicians who are um, constructing the um, the Holly Smoot tariff um, actually gave to foreign retaliation. Um, you know, you you read at one point that the congressional records um, uh, for this particular tariff ran for thousands of pages. You know, cost something like one hundred thirty one thousand dollars to publish. Uh, there were you know like uh, there there were like you know speeches that lasted twenty pages on um, you know tomato imports and things like that. But there was almost no consideration um, that other countries might retaliate with their own 
um, tariff. Uh, and so I was just hoping that you could um, talk a bit about how um, the Holly Smoot tariff um, came about and what it might say about, um, you know, uh, Americans' view of um, uh, the United States in relation to the rest of the world? Sure. Um, well, it, it came about because um, of sort of the depression in the farm economy in the 1920s after World War One. There was sort of overexpansion during uh, the war um, when we became a big uh, food exporter, uh, and that couldn't be sustained in the 1920s once normalcy returned. And so there's this issue in American politics because we're still – not largely a farm-based economy, it was a big part of the economy, of how to help farmers who are suffering from uh, uh, mortgage losses uh, and uh, bankruptcy and things of that sort. And uh, Congress twice passed in the 1920s price supports, which, of course, uh, we've had uh, in more recent years, but um, as a way of helping out farmers uh, boost uh, their incomes and uh, raise the prices for the crops they're getting. And President Calvin Coolidge twice vetoed that legislation. Uh, but because the farm states were so well represented, particularly in the Senate, um, they, you know, wanted something to help out their constituents. Um, and so uh, they came across, uh, across the idea, well, if we can't have uh, price supports or direct subsidy, uh, let's just stop imports of, of farm goods uh, to help out farmers. And this is a little bit disingenuous because uh, we're, as I sort of pointed out, we, we were a net exporter of most farm goods. Yes, we imported wool. Yes, we imported sugar, but uh, wheat um, corn, um, uh, cotton, we were still big exporters of. So the idea that an import tariff would really help out American farmers was a little bit far-fetched. But politically, they thought they they wanted to do something. Well, once that idea got set um, and Congress sort of uh, started um, hearings on a new tariff bill in the spring of 1929, um, you get uh, what political scientists have identified as log rolling, and uh, uh, which just means that, well, if you're going to vote for a higher tariff on wool, um, you want, want to throw in steel as well to get more votes for that. And manufacturers got in the act and uh, tariffs began to go up across the board when it was really designed initially for um, the farm community. So you get this uh, rise in tariffs uh, in the House bill um, sort of across the board at a time when there's the spring of 1929 when the economy is doing very well. We have very low unemployment rate. The stock market's booming. Um, industrial production's going up. Um, GDP growth is pretty robust. Uh, so this is the pre-depression period, and yet they're still passing this tariff bill. Well, the problem uh, is always that uh, it's fairly easy for the uh, leading party or the party in power to get something through the House because there's a lot of uh, discipline. But when you move to the Senate, uh, you know, each senator is their own agent. And so uh, it had been the case in the 19th century and prior to this period that the Senate was always is called the graveyard of tariff reform or the graveyard of, of a lot of legislation because it got held up a lot. Um, and that's where you had speeches uh, on, uh, you know, all day long on the tomato tariff or the clothespin tariff or the iron ball bearing tariff. Um, and literally, they're debating the, the tariff code line by line. Um, and I think there are over 3,000 items in the tariff uh, code at that point in time. So uh, it's just took a long time. Uh, it was laborious. Uh, senators sort of looked foolish a little bit to the press because, They'd vote a tariff up, and then a couple of days later, they'd reconsider and vote it down because the political coalitions were shifting. At any rate, by the time they passed it, uh, it was the spring of 1930, and we had the stock market crash, uh, and the economy was beginning to sink into a recession. It wasn't quite evident there was going to be a Great Depression quite yet. Um, and then the rationale for the bill changed a little bit, saying, well, we need to now protect manufacturers because uh, the economy is softening. Um but then, so the whole, it took over a year, about a year and a half to work its way through Congress. 
Um, and Congress is spending an inordinate, inordinate amount of time on uh, debating these sort of minute tariff rates. So it, it didn't do Congress, uh, you know, much. Uh, they didn't look good in terms of the public. And, and members of Congress were very frustrated, saying, why are we spending so much time on this thing when there are many other uh, policies we could be considering that would help the economy? So that's how we got it. And uh, you're absolutely right. Um, there's no consideration of what the foreign reaction might be. And that's because if you're a, a, a senator from Iowa, you really care about what's going on uh, with corn and uh, imports that might be hurting your constituents. Um, you're not really concerned about whether other countries are going to respond to what you're doing. Um, and so most members of Congress took a very parochial view of what the tariff meant. How does it affect my reelection chances? How does it affect my constituents? They were sort of looking up uh, and uh, listening to the world saying, uh, you know, if America passes this, um, we're going to raise our tariffs against American goods. It just, uh, the Democrats tried to bring it up a little bit, but it just got no traction when you're uh, in the minutia of the tomato tariff or the clothespin tariff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, even, uh, you know, President Hoover at one point, uh, you know, when he was facing calls for, you know, some international conference on uh, tariffs and trade policy, uh, he insisted on the tariff being a domestic concern. Uh, and I just thought that was, uh, that, that was just such an interesting attitude to something that like, very explicitly connects you to the rest of the world. Right. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a really fascinating episode, um, uh, and you lay it out uh, really nicely in the book. Um, and so, really quickly, things change. Um, you know, you you have a changing government. Um, you know, FDR replaces Hoover, uh, and you have sort of the emergence of um, you know New Deal legislation. And um, something that comes out in uh, or that gets passed in 1934 is the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act. Uh, and it's, it's a really significant piece of legislation um, in your narrative. Uh, it, it fundamentally changes how trade policy gets done. So um, what was this act and um, why did it matter? Sure. Well, under the Constitution, uh, Article 1, Section 8, I believe, uh, Congress has the power to um, levy taxes on imports and regulate uh, foreign trade. And um, after having spent a year and a half, uh, you know, um, going through the tariff code, Congress wasn't really in a mood, particularly when the Democrats took over, to, um, you know, go through the tariff uh, code again and start reducing rates um, and trying to undo the damage that had done, been done by the Holly Smoot tariff and the retaliation that had taken place. And so, uh, what President Roosevelt and the Democrats decided to do is. Um, give the president the authority to negotiate on behalf of the country with other countries to reduce um, American tar- the American tariff if other countries uh, followed suit and reduced their tariff against our goods. Um, and there, there are various reasons why this is sort of a natural thing. You know, in the pa- in the past, you know, when say for example um, Woodrow Wilson came in in a Democrat in uh, the 1912 election, um, what Congress would do is just pass a lower tariff if that's what they wanted. Um, but when he had 25% unemployment in 1933, when the economy was really on its back, uh, passing a unilateral tariff reduction um, was politically difficult even for the Democrats. And uh, as the retaliation sort of indicates or suggests, the whole international environment had changed for uh, U.S. commerce in the world. So it was really the U.S. stepping up um, and saying, we have to be engaged in the world. Our trade policies do affect policies in other countries. And if we want other countries to change their policies against our exports, we have to change our policy at home regarding our, our, our imports. And so the Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act simply authorized the president to uh, sort of unilaterally make changes in the U.S. tariff code 
on the basis of agreements that uh, he or she might reach. And th this is obviously a huge change from the past where Congress was really in the driver's seat in terms of, in terms of trade policy. And the president just basically signed whatever Congress passed. Um, now the president uh, uh, really could uh, shape U.S. trade policy for foreign policy reasons, for national security reasons, for economic reasons. Uh, and then it was, and, uh, the, the Congress was sort of uh, following. And just moving forward, uh, I mean, you know, this is a 900-page book, and so we're skipping over tons of material in our conversation uh, necessarily. So <laughs> hopefully, um, you know, we're uh, intriguing our, our listeners to, to go and read it themselves. Um, so skipping over, um, you know, several decades, um, the 1970s is another moment of great change. Um, you know, the geographic support for each party is shifting. Um, and uh, foreign competition is increasingly uh, cutting into American production. And so the, the post-war free trade orientation uh, in policy um, somehow remains stable um, throughout all these changes. So how does this um, stability um, persist, um, even as sort of the economic geography and political geography is changing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, one of the things I try to show in the book that even in the late 40s and the 1950s, when the U.S. economy wasn't facing a lot of foreign competition, when the U.S. really was stepping up and becoming a leader in the world, helping create the U.N., NATO, um, Marshall Plan, things of that sort, even during that period, when you might have thought trade politics would be, if it's ever going to be easy, it would be easy during this period, even then it was very difficult. Um, the 1945 renewal of the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act was pretty tough. Um, in the 1950s, there was pressure from some, once again, some states and, and some representatives for higher tariffs. So it's never been easy. And it certainly became harder, as you point out, in the 1970s, when um, the sort of geographic uh, support for the parties is changing as Republicans sort of make inroads into the South and the Democrats solidify their uh, hold in the North. Um, and then it's made even more difficult when uh, foreign competition, which had been in abeyance uh, after World War II because Japan and Western Europe were really uh, flat on their backs in terms of their economy. Once they started exporting again and improving the, the quality of their exports, that began to, to interfere with certain U.S. industries. Of course, we're all aware of the uh, auto industry. And that really begins in the 1970s. And so that just makes trade policy even more contentious than it had been in the uh, 50s and 60s um, and sort of leads into where we are today with you know, debates over NAFTA and uh, trade with China and things of that sort. But I think, uh, you know, once again, the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act really did fundamentally changed sort of the direction of U.S. trade policy. And it made it more difficult in some sense for the president to reach these trade agreements. But um, Presidents, uh, you know, to a more or less degree, have uh, wanted to pursue them um, for for various reasons. Um, partly to overcome continued discrimination against uh, the U.S. in, in uh, world markets, um, and so there have been pockets of protection, and certain industries have gotten exceptions to the rule. Uh, but we've still maintained largely a pretty open trade policy focused on trade agreements, uh, even during the difficult period of the '70s and '80s and into the '90s. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you already know, uh, I'm Canadian. Uh, and so, you know, NAFTA, and I'm also, and I was born in 89. So uh, I, uh, um, you know, I'm almost like a child of NAFTA, <laughs> if you will. Uh, and so sure. um, I, I was I was hoping that you could um, talk about how um, the debates over NAFTA in the 1990s um, um, fit into um, uh, your larger narrative. 
Sure. Um, so once again, um, nothing is easy in terms of uh, trade policy, either moving tariffs up or down. Um, and uh, well, let's talk about the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement first, uh, because that's sort of an interesting one in uh, terms of uh, how little um, the U.S. political establishment um, really cared about NAFTA, about the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement. So here's this huge deal for Canada. Um, you know whether we should integrate with the U.S. or not. Huge debate. Um, you know, uh, in Parliament, in the press, and the think tanks, among the population, everyone's really focused on it. And the U.S., even the U.S. trade negotiators uh, at the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, really, it, it was a, a backseat item. They didn't really care. They didn't cultivate much support for it. And I, I sort of lay out because there are lots of great, great memoirs uh, from sort of the Canadian negotiators about how it almost collapsed and almost failed. And it was uh, tra- Treasury Secretary James Baker who really saved the deal at the last minute by realizing, you know what, if we actually don't take this seriously, the Canadians might walk and we, this thing might fail. So just the, uh, the the perception in the two countries where in Canada it's a huge deal in the U.S. It was uh, almost, uh, you know, we almost lost the U.S.-Canada free trade agreement uh, because of uh, U.S. ignorance and, and uh, not caring about it. Um, that tells you something right there. Um, and then NAFTA comes about because uh, Mexico had some political changes and they want to join uh, the U.S.-Canada arrangement. Um, and that, of course, sparked uh, where U.S.-Canada agreement was uh, you know, basically uncontroversial, passed Congress very easily um, because uh, it just wasn't – Canada wasn't viewed as a threat, uh, a very friendly ally and what have you. But adding Mexico really changed the trade politics. And uh, you know, I lived on – more than you are. I lived through the NAFTA debate. Um, but uh, I didn't – it was sort of going back and looking at the debate uh, with the uh, passage of time, almost 25 years, it made me realize how it really has these long-lasting impacts in terms of U.S. trade policy. It changed the way presidents thought about future trade agreements. It changed trade politics and made trade politics much more toxic in some sense in the U.S., much more difficult. Um one reason, for example, why the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Canada agreed to, uh, the U.S. Uh, and the Trump administration decided not to uh, go into. In fact, uh, a lot of Democrats opposed it as well. Um, so NAFTA, um, very difficult uh, uh, debate in the U.S., a very tight vote in uh, the Congress on whether uh, to do it or not, um, brought out a lot of labor groups um, and others against uh, a more open trade uh, with Mexico. Um, and uh, we're still living with that. And uh, the, sa- the same coalitions, pro and con, are still active in uh, U.S. trade politics today. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let- let's talk a little bit more about um, the more recent politics of um, trade policy. Um, so, you know, your book deals uh, a lot with, um, you know, the structural factors um, underlying um, trade policy, um, you know, the political um, contentiousness of it all. Uh, how does Trump fit into this narrative? Well, that's that's a really interesting question, an important one. Um, you know, I sent this book to the publisher in September of 2016, right before the election. Oh gosh! Um, that everyone was expecting Hillary Clinton to win, and I expected yeah. the book would sort of sink to the bottom of the sea. No one would care about it because uh, Hillary Clinton wouldn't raise trade as a major issue at all. Instead, um, actually, to the benefit of the book. Uh, you know, <laughs> Trump has raised trade issues uh, to the forefront of the policy agenda and really made it controversial and topical. And he refers to history a lot in terms of his um, uh, talks um, and, and speeches. Um, and so 
I, I was able to adjust, you know, the last few pages uh, during the page proof period um, uh, to take into account the fact that we had this uh, new president who uh, had said all these outrageous things about NAFTA and TPP and how trade was destroying us and American carnage and what have you. So that's, you know, so the question is, you know, how, what sort of forecast would I make and then how have things played out in terms of the Trump administration? So in the book, what I suggested is that, well, you know what, there are these structural factors that you, you've uh, identified and I've tried to talk about a bit that really give the status quo bias. You can't change too much in terms of trade policy. Uh, and here's a president who really wants to make big changes. And I think to some extent, um, the thesis of the book holds in the sense that if you look at what President Trump says he wants to do with respect to trade and what he's actually done um, are very different things. So he did not pull out of NAFTA. Uh, and the USMCA is basically this relatively minor rewrite of NAFTA. So not much change there. Um, we haven't changed too much uh, with respect to uh, trade with Western Europe. Um, you know, he has protected the steel industry. Well, you know, President George W. Bush protected the steel industry. Ronald Reagan protected the steel industry. Lyndon Johnson and uh, Jimmy Carter protected the steel industry. That's nothing new. The steel industry has always been very politically powerful and has been in the past been able to get new restrictions on imports. So that's not not really anything new. Um, pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Well, you know, uh, if we had had President Hillary Clinton, she had campaigned on exactly the same thing. Um, and most Democrats were against TPP. So it may not even have been brought up if the Democrats had, had won the 2016 election. Um, the big changes with China, um, uh, where President Trump really has, I think, uh, been a game changer in terms of um, uh, limiting uh, trade with China and uh, having a more adversarial uh, relationship. Although even there, uh, even in the late Obama administration, there was increasing concern about uh, China and the direction uh, China was going under President Xi. So if uh, you were asleep for the past three or four years and you woke up and said, what trade policy changes have there been? Um, except for China, sort of nothing too much out of the ordinary and nothing uh, really radical or revolutionary. That may be soft peddling things to the extent that uh, rhetoric does matter. Um, he has uh, President Trump uh, through his rhetoric on trade saying we're being destroyed and other countries are taking advantage of us. It really has poisoned uh, the prospects of, of new trade agreements. Um, and uh, uh, it, it does matter. Uh, and he's certainly been attacking the World Trade Organization um, and sort of led to um, some uh, deterioration in its effectiveness going forward. So um, you could spin this sort of one of two ways. One is in the long you know, tapestry of American trade policy history. There's less uh, that has changed here than uh, one might uh, suspect uh, uh, when we're riveted every day to what the tweet might be on, on tariffs or what have you. Um, at the same time, the rhetoric uh, has been very divisive and the administration has not won many friends in other countries with respect to um, cooperating on trade to lead to uh, 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 more trade agreements. So I think you could spin it either way. Um, and I think a lot will hinge on whether the president is a one-term president or a two-term president. Um, if he's a one-term president, then uh, a new administration can uh, you know, sort of reorient trade policy in terms of where it's been for the past few decades. Um, if he's a two-term president, then uh, we have more trade conflict ahead of us, um, and he could really change the uh, global trading system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've actually interviewed several authors uh, who – um, you know, were uh, just frustrated by, um, you know, their like their book deadline kind of 
coinciding with this very, you know, transformative or this like very big change in government in 2016. And so it sounds like you had a very similar experience. The, the, the president just kept on moving ahead as, uh, you know, your book deadline remained fixed. So uh, I just have a, a, a few more questions um, that I'd like to ask. Um, and so one is just a methodological question. Uh, you know, this is a really big book that covers a lot of material. Uh, and so um, I'm just wondering, how does one write a book like this? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it was a, a long work in progress, um, you know, more than a decade. But, um, you know, unlike historians and uh, perhaps more like political scientists, uh, economics is really a, a, a article based um, industry. Um, most uh, economists just don't write books. They'll just write articles. And I'd written a lot of articles over the past 10 or 15 years on various aspects of, of U.S. trade policy uh, history. So um, I'd done some stuff in the colonial period and the post-colonial period and the 19th century and, and uh, Holly Smoot and things of that sort. So in some sense, this book was just filling in the gaps and, and putting those uh, many, many articles um, in, in one package. But it's actually much more than that because uh, the articles are much more economics-based. And uh, I had to fill in a lot of political history um, and um, uh, to sort of understand where the tariff acts are coming from. And so that was sort of uh, took the time in terms of the research, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so it's the book really is sort of this amalgam of uh, political history, um, drawing from political scientists and, and uh, historians, and then economic history, drawing on economic historians, obviously, and then my own work on trade policy in particular. So it's putting a lot of stuff in and um, just trying to sort of provide a you know, fairly comprehensive treatment of, of trade policy since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, based on my cursory reading of, um, you know, your sources, it seems like uh, everything is um, publicly available materials, right? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, because trade policy is you know, publicly debated in Congress, the congressional debates are all, you know, in the congressional record. Um, a lot of the data is publicly available, the Tariff Commission or the U.S. International Trade, Tar Trade Commission. Um, so it's pretty much above board. Obviously, we don't know what's going on behind closed doors and, and the influence of various lobbies. But in some sense, you know, uh, what I suggest is, you know, if you're from Pennsylvania, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican, you want to protect the steel industry from foreign competition. So how you make your, uh, you know, voice heard in, in any particular administration or in the halls of Congress uh, it doesn't really matter whether it's, you know, sort of campaign contributions or bribes or what have you. Um, we just sort of know where that representative or senator is going to uh, stand based on uh, the interests of, of the people of Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I thought, I thought your book did um, a really fantastic job of making a case for just dealing with um, publicly available um, records, especially for uh, a domain that is so vehemently publicly debated. Um, and so just moving on to, um, I guess, my pen penultimate question. Um, so, you know, you, you've gone through the, the history of the Republic, essentially, um, with, uh, an, you know, an attention paid to trade policy. Uh, and so I was wondering if you could perhaps say something about um, the relationship between trade policy and foreign policy. Um, in this longer term perspective, um, you know, for instance, how has um, this relationship changed or how has this relationship um, uh, remained the same? It's a very big question. 
Sure. Well, I can just give you a sort of a quick sketch off the top of my head, which is that it seems to me that's sort of like a, a U-shape, where when you look in the uh, colonial period and the uh, period immediately after independence and the 1790s, um, trade policy really is foreign policy. So one of the big debates in the, uh, between, say, Hamilton and Jefferson in the 1790s in the Washington administration was, are we uh, friends with Britain or not? Are we friends with France or not? Um, and what sort of trade policy should we have with respect to these countries? Um, uh, and show our friendship or our uh, displeasure with their policies. Um, and uh, so they, trade policy was an instrument to uh, sort of uh, uh, for in terms of foreign uh, policy at that time. One example being, great example being uh, Thomas Jefferson declaring an embargo on all trade uh, 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 in uh, 1808 um, based on the fact that we didn't like uh, the fact that Britain and France were interfering with our shipping while they were fighting each other during no, the Napoleonic Wars. So our only really instrument for uh, affecting that was um, uh, trade policy. But then after the War of 1812, really for a long time, trade policy and foreign policy sort of uh, get divorced from one another um, because really Congress is calling the shots in terms of trade policy. Um, the president is in charge of foreign policy. Um, uh, you know, I guess historians could say whether we're isolationist or not, but we just certainly weren't very active. Um, and so trade policy really wasn't uh, used in that way. And then with um, Roosevelt and the uh, uh, Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act, um, the U.S. becomes more active on the international stage and trade policy uh, then becomes sort of a, a lever. Um, and uh, certainly in the immediate post-World War II period, um, we're using trade policy as a way of uh, opening our market, getting other countries to open their markets, solidifying the Western alliance, um, building strong economies that can resist uh, uh, communism. Um, you know, certainly that's what uh, John, President John Kennedy was talking about when he uh, proposed the Trade Expansion Act, uh, which was passed in 1962. And he talked about it in precisely those terms, uh, solidifying the Western alliance and making us stronger. Um, and then when you go to more recent periods, um, you know, trade policy is still used as a foreign policy tool. We have uh, trade agreements with our friends. We try to have sanctions or um, uh, limit our interactions with uh, our perceived enemies. And so there's sort of where China fits in, too, because there's been sort of this sea change in, in U.S. attitude and view of China um, over the past uh, 10 years or so. And now we're, we're sort of separating our economies using trade policy as the way of achieving that. Hmm. So we're back to the beginning. <laughs> uh, in a way, yeah. Just the final question, the question that we always um, uh, you know, end our program on. Um, what are you working on right now? Well, having spent a lot of time on the U.S., um, I've sort of had my say on what's going on, although uh, current events sort of keep me uh, somewhat engaged in what uh, the U.S. is doing in terms of trade policy. But I really shifted to uh, other countries, uh, particularly developing countries in the post-World War II period, and looking at their trade policies and, and how they've gone from really being quite economically closed uh, in the 1950s and 60s, when having a lot of exchange controls, uh, overvalued currencies, high tariffs, quantitative restrictions on trade, and sort of one by one, for some reason, domestically being able to find the uh, political will to uh, open up to uh, trade. Um, so Taiwan in the 1950s, Korea in the 1960s, Chile in the 1970s, Mexico and others in the 1980s. And then really from the late 80s until early 1990s, a whole bunch of countries. Um, obviously, uh, China's a big player there, but India radically changed its trade policies in 1991, um, as did uh, some other countries. And so I'm trying to understand that process domestically in different countries in terms of how certain policymakers uh, were able to uh, uh, bring about a big change in trade policy um, that, you know, in some sense, we have 
only seen rarely in the U.S. Uh, because of that status quo bias, because of the the uh, longstanding interests that are uh, in play. Um, how is it that other countries have uh, uh, opened up and led us into this globalized world of today? Wow, uh, that sounds like a very ambitious project, and I uh, eagerly await to, to read it. Um, I want to thank you again, uh, Douglas Irwin, for joining me on the program. You're most welcome. It was a great pleasure. Absolutely. And I want to thank you, listeners, uh, for tuning in to New Books in History. <laughs>